0: In recent weeks, the war in Ukraine has become focused on the Donbass, in the southeast of the country, and in particular, around one city.
2: Severodonetsk remains the centre of the confrontation in Donbass. This is a very fierce battle, a very difficult one, probably the most difficult of the war.
0: Russia's top diplomat says liberating the Donetsk and Luhansk region is his country's unconditional priority. Could the fierce battle for one city be pivotal in determining the course of the rest of the war?
2: This battle for Severodonetsk and for the Donbass is now really crucial. If the Ukrainians can win that battle, then they can go on the offensive. If the Russians do manage to take all of the Donbass, then I think it's a very different matter. I think you'll probably then in for a very long conflict.
0: What's happening on the ground in the Donbass? And will either side be willing to negotiate over the territory for the sake of peace? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Ukraine, the fight for the Donbass.
2: It's a curious thing, covering this sort of war. I'm used to the Wars in the Middle East, which are a different type of war. The front lines, when there are front lines in these wars, are often either dominated by sort of fairly uncoordinated, badly organized frontline fighting. It's just sort of random people firing around corners at each other. So once you worked out who was good at that and who was bad at that and where Mm. you made sure you kept behind a wall, you were probably okay.
0: For the last few months, the Times Middle East correspondent Richard Spencer has been swapping conflict zones like Iraq and Syria for Ukraine. He's just arrived back from a reporting trip near the front line.
2: An an artillery war like we've got here is a very different matter because we've got two reasonably competent militaries with fairly advanced artillery. And if they're targeting a position you're in... Uh, that's pretty dangerous and you need to get out pretty quickly.
0: Richard, you've been in the east in parts of the Donbass, in particular near Severodonetsk. Tell us where you were and describe what it was like.
2: While I was in Ukraine, I spent a week uh, out in the Far East looking at this battle for the Donbass, which is now focused on this pocket of territory around the city of Severodonetsk. The Donbass is two provinces of Ukraine, parts of which have been in pro-Russian forces since 2014. When the Russian invasion of the north of Ukraine failed, uh, when they withdrew from around Kiev and Kharkiv, they really put all their resources into capturing the remainder of these two provinces. And Severodonetsk is the largest city still in Ukrainian hands in Luhansk, uh, the, the sort of northeastern of those provinces. And they try to encircle it. They, they tried a pincer movement to cut off a, a fairly large part of the Ukrainian army inside this pocket. But they have been held back. So instead, they did a full frontal assault on the city from the northeast. And the, the pocket in between, which has other smaller towns and villages in it, has come under pretty heavy shellfire as well as a side effect of that war. And uh, we were in a couple of those towns. There were still civilians living there rather remarkably, but spending a lot of time in their their bunkers, in the basements of their flats and so on, trying to shelter from this shelling. And you're never quite sure what's going to happen next. You're never quite sure whether the Russians were going to break through. And the, the locals also not quite sure, you know, which side was eventually going to win.
0: I mean, are the buildings mainly intact? Does life go on as anything like normal for the ones who are still there?
2: No, not at all. Um, It it just depends how far you are from the front line. You know, you go to, say, I was in this town called Bakhmut, that's probably, I guess, five miles, six miles from the nearest front line. And there, you know, normal life goes on. But as you drive through town, you'll see buildings that have been hit by shell fire, particularly factories. Um, There was a gypsum factory there that has obviously been... The Russians have decided, for whatever reason, that's a military target and that's been hit by missiles and shells six or seven times. A colleague was doing a live, uh, live stand up to camera there and, uh, and a missile hit behind him, which was pretty alarming for him.
0: Ah, one rocket, second. сюда это просто обстреливать нашу позицію.
2: ну вы як как у нас яка у нас ситуация тут and sometimes you see residential buildings that have been hit as well. But, you know, still people lining up outside shops or or standing to to get aid supplies, lorries come around and give aid to the residents. The next town on the road to, to Severodonetsk, you get to this town called Solidar, which is a sort of industrial mining town. It has the biggest salt mine in Ukraine and it's got various factories as well. But it's quite raw as well. It's kind of odd mixture. It's, it's set in in some quite green, rolling countryside, and there you just see very, very heavy damage. That town is on this is is just off to the side of this main supply road, which the Russians have been trying to capture from the Ukrainians unsuccessfully so far. And you can see there that quite a lot of ordinary buildings have been whacked, and it's very, very quiet. People are still there. There's no electricity or running water, so they they live in their basements and then they come out to make fires out of firewood in the courtyard of their block of flats or whatever and uh, cook themselves a meal on that with water taken from a couple of wells and then they'll retreat back into their their basements.
0: We've often been told in the past that in the Donbass there are factions who are still quite pro-Russian. Is that what you encountered? I mean, what were people saying to you?
2: You know, there's a difference between these areas in the East, which are historically Russian speaking, much closer to Russia, which have been part of the Russian empire on and off for for centuries. Hmm. And parts of Western Ukraine, where, you know, Ukrainian is very much the first language, where uh, there's been a long history of striving for independence for russia where russia has often been seen as an occupying power or indeed parts of western ukraine were part of poland until the second world war a man came up to me in solidar and started talking about what was going on and you know i wouldn't i mean to say he was pro-russian i I sometimes think this is it's wrong to think of people as pro-russian but they do have a more i I guess different approach to politics they you know they're less political i suppose is the obvious thing again Mm. they've they they feel that they've less they've never had a say in their political arrangements. You know they certainly didn't under the Soviet Union, obviously. And so their their idea that they have much stronger idea that Russian rule is inevitable. That people like them don't get to to make the rules. So why not just let the Russians have their way and then everyone can live in peace? Uh, this one this one guy who came up to me and said, "Oh, Russia's going to win. Why why are the Ukrainians fighting? Why is everyone supporting them?" All you're doing, you as in you, you British person, Western European person, all you're doing is annoying the Russians. They'll they'll just be even more savage. They'll be on the gates of Paris and Berlin if you do this. you know, This idea that Russian power is, is in some way invincible and Russian aggression is inevitable. I mean, there were clearly people who were pro-Russian, and I think they've probably all gone over to Russian-controlled territory. I, I, the other thing I would say is that there are a lot of people who were more Russian in their cultural heritage, if you like, but are also now very anti-Russian because of what's happened. And that's, that's mm. a very important shift, I, I, I suspect, that a lot of the people we spoke to who were very hostile to Putin and what was going on and were very angry with Russia for the invasion, were people who would in the past have voted for the, so, the so-called pro-Russian parties in Ukraine. I met a woman in in this town, Bakhmut, who's right on the front line. And uh, she was, you know, these, as a lot of Ukrainians are, these demons, these Russians, they're awful. You know, they've come and they can't believe what Putin is doing. i strangle him with my bare hands. Wow. And I sort of, you know, is doing... My usual question, we know, who, what's your name? Where are you from? And it emerged that she was basically Russian. She'd been born in Russia. Her parents were Russian. Everything about her was Russian. She just happened to move to this town in the 1980s before the Soviet Union fell apart when it was part of the same country with her husband. But she was, to all intents and purposes, Russian. And yet here she was saying she hated the Russians, hated what they were doing, and would never go there again. And of course, a lot of these people have relatives in in Russia, who they no longer speak to, and lots of families have broken up over this.
0: And Richard, we are now more than a 100 days into the war. I mean, just talk us through how things have progressed since the invasion began.
2: If I were to characterise an understanding of this war, it, I think it's pretty sim- simple to say that our, our analytical response, you know, perhaps newspapers' response of this, has has you know, swung too much from one side to the other. You know, when we started, everyone said, like, "Oh my God, Russia's a huge army; they're going to just roll into Ukraine and, and and walk over it." And and a few more sensible and experienced voices said, "Well, actually, it's not quite as easy as that. It's not quite. It's not that easy to take a country that's mm-hmm. got a got an army and is prepared to defend itself." And so it proved. The Russian invasion, the attack on Kiev and Kharkiv, was entirely predicated on the idea that the Russians. You know, the Russians had bought into their own propaganda. Like, they thought that the Ukrainian democracy was very fragile and that no one really supported Zelensky. Putin didn't have the strategy or the resources or the sophisticated equipment or the sophisticated planning to actually implement that first invasion plan of taking Kiev and Kharkiv. The battered ruins of Russian military vehicles are scattered outside Kiev this morning. But a U.S. military official tells NBC News All Russian troops have left the region. The Russians came, they killed, they retreated, withdrawing back to Belarus and Russia for repairs. Uh, So that was pretty humiliating for him. But then again, I think we overreacted a bit and said, oh my God, Russia is about to collapse. People were talking about whether there'd be a coup against Putin because it was so humiliating that the Ukrainians would sweep the Russians out of the country and, and so on. And that was also a great exaggeration. When I went along the front lines, not just in the Donbass, but but other parts of the country, you suddenly realize the enormity of what Russia has achieved. As of today, the occupiers control almost 20% of our territory. That's almost 125,000 square kilometers. This is much larger than the area of all the Benelux countries combined. And almost 300,000 square
0: meters are
2: contaminated with unexploded mines, and ammunitions. They've taken that huge strip, I mean, a swathe of territory across the southeast of the country from the Russian border all the way to the city of Kherson, which is quite a big city, and that's just northwest of the Crimea. So they have this not only do they have this land bridge to the Crimea from the Russian border, which is obviously strategically very important and cuts. Ukraine off from the Sea of Azov and these cities in it like Mariupol and Militopol and Kursum, they've also expanded the area of the Donbass that they control quite a lot. So Russia is still well ahead of where it was on February the 24th. It's going to be very hard for Ukraine to take back that territory. It is the fundamental truth of warfare that if you have artillery and a well-supplied army which both sides basically have. Russians may not have been running their army very well, but they've still got a big army and it's still reasonably well supplied. It's it's very hard to take territory. So yes, Russia has managed to devise an alternative strategy, which is to focus as much of its manpower and heavy artillery in one part of the front as it can, namely this bit of the Donbass around Severodonetsk, and put in reserves and other fighting forces and artillery just enough to deter the uh, Ukrainians from attacking, counter-attacking in other parts of the front. And so that's how we're settling in for the time being for this war, and it's, it's going to be sort of rather messy and grinding and long, I think.
0: Coming up, why the Donbass is so important to both sides and how the battle for Severodonetsk could influence the outcome of the war. That's after a quick message from a colleague. My name is Larissa Brown and I am the defence editor at The Times. I often tell people this is the best job in the world because you get to see people do the most extraordinary things on behalf of our nation. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax... In Severodonetsk, the city in the Donbass where the fighting is at its most intense, the fate of the city still hangs in the balance. Ukrainian forces launched a successful counterattack earlier this week, but the Russians now have control over
2: most of the city. There's been no let-up in the battle for the eastern Ukrainian city of Severodonetsk. The regional governor, Serhii Haidai, said street fighting was continuing, with Russian forces using heavy artillery fire, followed by attempts to break through Ukrainian lines.
0: Just tell us a bit about the area. Tell us a bit about Severodonetsk as a city and why it's so important.
2: It's 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 a very interesting question about why the Russians are putting so much weight on onto this town of Severodonetsk, and indeed why the Ukrainians are defending it with such resilience. <laughs> it's not strategic in any in any sense that the history books talk about strategic cities. It's not in control of, you know, the oil supplies or the coal supplies. It's not a port. But as I say, this big question for all, all along this war is, you know, what on earth did Putin hope to achieve by this? Obviously. If he could have seized the whole country or engineered regime change, got rid of Zelensky in favour of a pro-Russian leader on the model of Lukashenko in Belarus to the north, then obviously that was ideal for him. So now he has to say, well, what's my goal here? What, What am I trying to achieve? He's got his land bridge to Crimea. It looks like he's not going to try immediately to go on towards Odessa. My my prime purpose is to liberate the Donbass, as he puts it, and as his officials put it, and that means capturing the rest of Luhansk and Donetsk. So it's a pretty symbolic battle he's fighting, and and the Ukrainians are defending it because it's also symbolic to them. It's it's become an issue of morale, I think. This battle, whoever wins this battle, ends with the better morale, and therefore sets up the next stage of the conflict in their favour. And I think that's pretty much all that it's about.
0: And we know that. President Zelensky has earlier in the week actually visited the area. It seems to be sort of, you know, incredibly important to the Ukrainians that they hold on to it.
2: To t- turn the tables a bit, you know, what justifies Ukraine to have sacrificed so many lives? We don't know how, what exactly what their military casualties are, but. Zelensky himself said that the army was losing up to 100 men a day. You know, you can do the maths and add in the civilians who've been killed in the occupied places, which was in the the thousands. So you're not hard to come up with a figure of around 10,000 dead or even more on the Ukrainian side. I mean, so you've got very large numbers of dead on both sides. So what's the, you know, how do you justify that? Well, in Zelensky's case, he's got to somehow at least persuade Ukrainians they can at least push the Russians back perhaps to where the Russians were at the beginning of this year's war, back to where the Russians were last year before they did this attack. So Zelensky needs to be able to persuade his men that they have the strength and the support and the backing from the West to actually drive back the Russians. And he needs to also instill the fear in the Russians that they are... On borrowed time, if you like, that they are at risk of a, a counterattack. So, from the Ukraine's point of view, if they can't keep hold of Severodonetsk and the rest of Luhansk and Donetsk, you know what hope have they got of taking back territory in the south? So that's, I think, that's why it's so important to him, and why, therefore, why he was prepared to put himself a great personal risk by making that visit to the front lines himself.
0: And. Richard, as you said, you know, we're not entirely sure just how significant Ukrainian losses have been so far. We know that the Americans have have started promising long-range missiles and so have we. The Defence Secretary says Britain will send an unspecified number of the launchers which can fire precision-guided rockets up to 50 miles. How much of a difference would that make to Ukraine? I mean, what would it enable them to do, and c- would it be enough to turn the tide in the Donbass?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of people were talking to us about this, particularly the soldiers, and particularly when they knew we were British, because they're very, they're very, very grateful for the support <laughs> the British have, have given us. They were desperate for more of these heavy weapons. That's what that's what everyone said. We want, we want these given their official title, multiple launch rocket systems, that can do to the Russian front lines what the Russians are doing to them. And I think it's just a question of numbers. If they get their hands on enough of these weapons, that could possibly turn the tide, particularly if you believe what we're told by Western analysts, particularly MOD and people, about the the poor state of Russian equipment, that although they've got a lot of it A lot of the stuff that ought to be in reserve is is not being very well maintained and therefore not really fit for purpose. If that's true, then a significant amount of Western European and American weapons sent to Ukraine could make a lot of difference.
0: In the meantime, though, I suppose there's also the danger that if we start to send these long range missiles, that Russia might in some way retaliate. Over the weekend, we saw for the first time in over a month, Kiev was under attack again. There were, there were blasts going off. A number of explosions have shaken parts of Kiev in the early hours of this morning in the first assault on Ukraine's capital for weeks. Russia claims it targeted a site storing tanks, but Ukraine says rockets hit a train repair plant where no tanks were held. Is there a danger that it, it might just anger the Russians enough to kick off elsewhere?
2: Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the big unknown of this whole war really is the whole issue of red lines. I see a lot of this war through the prism of what happened in Syria, and I think the military planners on both sides do too, actually, as well. And if you remember, Obama made set down this red line for when he would intervene in the Syrian war, which was the use of chemical weapons.
0: We have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground that A red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, That would change my calculus. That
1: would change my equation.
2: That now, I think, is seen by virtually everybody as, as a huge strategic blunder, you know, took away strategic ambiguity. And what that encouraged, of course, was it encouraged Assad and Russia, which backed Assad to push to that red line, knowing that America wouldn't seriously intervene. And then also to push at that red line. Oh, well, if we do use chemical weapons, what what's he going to do? And, and of course, he and the British together backed off. And that emboldened Putin to say, oh, well, I can push the West and, and they won't really take action. Now, the the Americans have thrown a huge amount of support at Ukraine over this, but made clear that they will not themselves intervene in the foreseeable circumstances, but that's kind of vague in itself. And the Russians have likewise sort of suggested that so long as the Americans don't themselves directly intervene militarily, don't themselves fire missiles or don't send their own troops in, then Russia will regard it just as a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But both sides are hinting at other things.
0: And Richard, I mean, just standing back, we we know that Kiev certainly seems to have come off the immediate list of places the Russians are targeting. But just talk us through where the rest of the country now stands, if you take a step back. So the east, clearly there is now fierce fighting still going on in the Donbass.
2: What about the south? Yeah, so It's very interesting. If look at the map of Ukraine, you have this very, very large country. And you have this strip of Russian-controlled territory that stretches from the northeast, say the north northeast of this city the second city kharkiv on the other side of the border you've got a city the russian city of belgorod and from from that line there's this strip inside of ukraine all the way around the outside all the way down that east side down to the black sea and then along the black sea coast as far as the city of Kherson, which is I say just the northwest of crimea and then you've got of course they control crimea as well What's incredible about Ukraine now is if you you go into a lot of the rest of the country and you wouldn't know what's happening. You can go you know, to cities in the west side and inland and even Kiev, and you can go and sit and have a you know nice meal in a nice restaurant. And there's traffic back on the streets. It's only when you get close to these front lines that you realise there's something very odd going on. People not on the streets, bomb buildings, occasional missile strikes, and that's really what we have to look at for the future, what becomes to these parts of Ukraine that are close to the Russian-controlled areas, but not actually in them. And in the south, you have these two very, very, very important cities, Mykolaiv and Odessa, which are on the Black Sea coast on the west side of Crimea. So these are the cities that are Ukraine's access to the outside world by sea. They're the ones where 10% of the world's grain supplies are shipped from and are currently blockaded by Russia. But again, in, say, in Odessa itself, you do feel quite a long way away from the war. There's a little bit of military presence, but, you know, as I say, hotels and restaurants are open and people are getting on with their normal lives until you go to the port, which is completely silent, which is quite eerie because it's an enormous wow. port.
0: And Mariupol too, which is obviously also another strategic city on that stretch of coast. Do we have a sense now that the Russians have, have taken it. You know, w- what does it look
2: like? Right. So Mariupol's on the east side of Crimea. So that's between Crimea and the Russian border. And, and now it is fully under Russian control. Half the city has been leveled, judging by pictures. Um, and lots of people fled Mariupol for the rest of Ukraine and are still doing so. We met people, uh, even on this trip, getting out of Mariupol into Ukrainian-held territory through various Corridors, a bit safer now for them to do so because the, the, the battle for Mariupol is over. And of course, the Russians are also taking Ukrainians into Russia itself for slightly unclear purposes, but they've moved hundreds of thousands of people from Ukraine into Russia proper, possibly against their will, it's all a bit unclear, and are said to be starting to repopulate it with Russians, possibly as a view to sort of amalgamating this whole. Stretch of territory into Russia directly or indirectly. As for whether you know the port at Mariupol will ever be functioning again in the near future with the Black Sea blockade and the sanctions against Russia, is that's another question. Um, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen to Mariupol in the in the coming years.
0: And Richard, at at the moment, given that there is still fierce fighting taking place in the Donbass, there have been some voices in the international arena, like President Macron, even Henry Kissinger, saying that perhaps it's time we started to talk about Ukraine sitting down with Russia and coming up with a peace deal, which presumably would mean ceding territory to the Russians. How does that go down in in Ukraine at the moment?
2: It goes down very badly because it, you know, it's taken as a sign of a lack of support for Ukrainian will. I mean, this idea that, That other countries should be deciding for Ukraine. What its negotiating position should be is is seen as the sort of attitude that got Ukraine into this position in the first place, this idea that it was somehow, you know, not a sovereign entity capable of making its own decisions. The other problem with this is it's, is what are we negotiating over? And that's, that's these very, very theoretical positions like, by people like Kissinger, who seems to be talking as if it was a question of détente between West and East, uh, as in the Cold War. Mm. But we're actually talking about a live war situation. And what Russia's been very good at is, say, OK, we'll freeze the conflict on the current lines, then we'll have negotiations. And you know negotiations don't go anywhere. And in that time, the Russia, or in serious case, the Russian ally has regrouped restocked given its soldiers a rest and then they're um fresh for another day i think the the ukrainians fear that if if they stop fighting now for negotiations they will effectively be conceding all the territory that russia now has russia has never given any indication as far as i'm aware in any of these conversations that putin has had with macron that you know, return, say, to the February the 24th borders is up for grabs. And it's hard to see why Russia would, just as it would be hard to see why Ukraine would concede to lose the territory that it's lost so far. So it's all very well to talk in theoretical terms for a ceasefire and and peace talks and so on. but it's, It's not quite clear what would be up for grabs for either side. So until they can come up with some sense of what they think the negotiating position for either side should be, it just sounds like words to me. It doesn't really sound very real. And it certainly doesn't sound real to the Ukrainians.
0: So, Richard, where does this go? I mean, we're more than 100 days in already. Where? What do the next 100 days look like?
2: So I've, I've said right from the beginning, well, not right from the beginning, but certainly from when the Russians withdrew from Kiev that this battle for Severodonetsk and for the Donbass is now really crucial. If the Ukrainians can win that battle then they can go on the offensive and if they can start pushing by the end of the year say which is what some of these military analysts say that they think could happen then you've got a different game plan and then you know you could go to Russia and say save yourself further pain and go back to the February 24th borders and then we'll try and work out with you something to meet your supposed concerns about NATO expansion or Russia's place in the world, or we give guarantees that Ukraine doesn't join NATO in return for being allowed to join the EU, then actually do come into play when it comes to negotiations. If the Russians do manage to take all of the Donbass, then I think it's a very different matter. I don't think the Ukrainians will give up. I think they will carry on fighting. You might see localised ceasefires, but I think you're probably then in for a very long conflict in which Ukraine basically says, we are at some stage going to retake all this territory, and if we have to fight for five or ten years, including insurgencies in occupied territory, we'll do that. And I, th- I, think, I think then you're in for a very, very tough, long conflict.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Middle East correspondent at The Times, Richard Spencer. You can find all of Richard's work from Ukraine at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Sam Chenterasak, with production help from Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you found this episode useful, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend.